pray, and then we'll spend some time in the book this morning. So let's go ahead and let's, let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we come before you. We thank you so very much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who's come, died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. We ask that as we open up your word, your spirit would be moving in our hearts, that you, we would see uh, those things that need to change, that you would, by the power of your spirit, make us more like your son, Jesus, and that as we walk away from this place, that we would continue to yield to your spirit and submit ourselves to the word, to Jesus, to your son, to you. We just thank you for this opportunity we have this morning to open up your word and think about these wonderful truths. And uh, we just thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. So when uh, you go to Bible college and you go to pastor's things, uh, there's a lot of discussion about leadership, obviously, because when you go to a pastor's conference, it's a room full of leaders. And when you go to Bible college, the assumption is you're going to be a church leader. So you get a lot of things about leadership. You get a lot of books about leadership. I've listened to a lot of people on leadership, not saying I'm the best. But I guess when I first started out in my ministry, I assumed that there was just two groups of people. There's people who always follow, and then there's a group of people that always lead. And that's just it. And you either fit in one of those two groups, and you better figure it out now, because if you're the follower type and you're trying to lead, that's going to be bad for everybody. I've just found that that's probably not wise to think of people in those terms. And biblically speaking, and just practically speaking, but biblically speaking, I've learned a couple truths. One, everyone is a leader at some time. Now, I'm not saying that you're officially named a leader, but you do have a sphere of influence. Uh, Might be one person, but you have a sphere of influence. So, in a sense, everyone does lead. Not in the same way, but everyone has been or will be a leader. It is also true that everyone in this room, biblically, is called to be a follower. Right? Every single one of us is a follower. Jesus asks us to follow him. There's never a point in which we say to Jesus, hey, you could take a break, go go to Florida, look at some manatees, go to Legoland. We got this, right? That, that, That never happens. Jesus is always the leader. We're always the followers. I've also learned this in thinking of Jesus being the the leader. I've learned that the best leaders, the best leaders are the best followers. They're the best ones. They're the ones that follow God's word. They're the ones that are mature. They're the ones that follow Jesus. I've also learned this, that the best leaders have the best goals, and the best goal is always Christ-likeness, right? That, that when we're leading people, regardless of where it is, regardless of what it is, it's always towards Jesus, right? That's what we're doing, always towards Jesus, always towards the word. So when I consider these things, I I then look around the room and I see a group of follower leaders. There's times where you're called to lead. You have to lead. There's times where you're called to follow. You have to follow. This text this morning is going to be dealing with the first. Leadership. Wise leadership. What does a wise leader look like? Now it would be very easy for us 
to look at a text like this and immediately think of every single person we didn't vote for and look at this text and go, see, they're not this. I want to caution you for a moment to not do that. Now, there may be a time, there may be a place for you to do that. Right now is not that time. Right now, I want us to think about what God has for us in this room, of what does it mean for us to be Christ-like. And when we are put in positions of leadership where we're leading people, what does that look like? What, what should we be doing? What does wise leadership look like? And so this morning, we're going to deal with one major principle. And here's the major principle. A wise leader is concerned with sin. He, he, he's concerned that, uh, with dealing with sin. He's concerned in leading people away from sin. There's this sense of discernment that a leader has to say, this is a good direction to go. This is a way that pleases the Lord. This is a bad way to go. We shouldn't go this way. And a, and a discerning leader looks at situations and says, here's the right, here's the wrong, here's some things that are wrong we need to deal with. A wise leader also has one other thing that they realize, and we're going to see this in this text. They realize that, yes, that's our job. We're called to do those things, to move people away from sin, but there are some humongous obstacles in our way. The profound sinfulness of man. The major op- one of the major obstacles we have is the profound sinfulness of man. First, in the leader themselves, profoundly sinful, but then the people who are underneath them. And then we're going to see that the leader has absolutely no way of changing the human heart. So you go, well, then what's the leader supposed to do? Then we're going to see the solution. Point them to Jesus who can. A leader is really one that says, I'm following Jesus, come with me. That's really what a leader does. We're all going towards Jesus. He's the one that can change human hearts. But we should be concerned about wickedness, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So go with me to Proverbs chapter 20. We're only going to be in two verses this morning, in verses 8 and 9, as we deal with this concept of leadership, this, this concept of there are times where God calls us to, to, to lead people, whether that's in a family setting, whether that's in a job setting, whether that's in a church setting, whatever. You have a sphere of influence. You get an opportunity to influence people. Here's what it is. So the first, in verse 8, we're going to see an objective of a leader, right, to winnow out or to remove evil. And then verse 9, we're going to see the major obstacle. So just notice in verse 8 what Solomon says here. By the way, this section starts in verse 8, and it will end in verse 26, maybe even in chapter 21, verse 1. So in a sense, this whole section deals with a wise leader and deals with some of the things that a wise leader does, what he puts up with. Uh, It also kind of shows a little bit of some of a foolish leader, what a foolish leader does and what he puts up with. So, notice in verse 8, it says, A king sits on the throne of judgment, winnows all evil with his eyes. Since we are so removed from the culture and we don't have a king, some may argue that some of our politicians act like kings, but they're not officially called kings. As Americans, it's a little difficult for us to imagine one person 
who is the government, who is the executive, the judicial, and the legislative branch in one person, right? And it's kind of hard for us to think of a society that's built around that. But that's exactly what you find here in the ancient world where the king was, he, he was the one who made the laws. He was the one who enforced the laws. And he was even the one who sat in judgment of the laws. So a king, here, here's this king who's acting like a judge. He's, he's a leader. He, he sits on a throne of judgment. This idea of a throne is a place of leadership. It's a place of authority. So he has the authority to do this. He's not usurping any authority. He has the authority to do this, and he's sitting on a, a throne of judgment. The idea of judgment here is a court case. Just think of Solomon. Remember that case where Solomon heard those two ladies, and they were fighting over the baby, and who was the real mom, and they didn't have the science that we do today to test the DNA, and so here's this really difficult case, and what does Solomon do? Well, he says, we'll cut the baby in half. We'll give one half to one, give the other half to the other. The one lady says, fine. The other one says, I don't care what you do. The baby is hers. Keep the baby. I, the baby needs to stay alive. And Solomon said, well, only a true mother would say something like that. And so he used wisdom in the way that he dealt with these court cases. And that would happen often. People would come before a king, they would give a case, and then he would be the one that would determine what's right and what's wrong and what should happen. It's kind of strange for us since we have such a uh, robust judicial system, right, of different courts and all of this. But just think of the king as the one who was the Supreme Court, right? He was, that was him. So if you heard in front of the king, what he said goes. Now, there's a, the idea here is probably that this is a wise king, because notice what he does in verse 8. It says, he winnows all evil. The process of winnowing is this idea of taking a, a crop, like, like wheat, and separating the, the parts that you want from the parts that you don't want, throwing away the parts that you don't want, and then keeping what you do want. It's that whole process, okay? That's winnowing. So, so here, in this sense, poetically, it's used of a king who has discernment. So this wise king has discernment. He's listening to the case. This is good. This is bad. He's weighing. He wants to get rid of the bad and keep the good. Now, the emphasis, notice, he winnows all evil. So the sense is, is that he wants to get rid of the bad, right? He's looking. He's making a judgment. He wants to get rid of the bad. By the way, this is great. This is, this is something that we as leaders need to be concerned about. Winnowing out evil, all forms of wickedness. Really, as believers, we never, we're told to love the things that the Lord loves and hate the things that the Lord hates. We really don't do ourselves justice if we try to confuse those two and we love something that the Lord hates and vice versa. So as believers, we always should be showing discernment. We should always be evaluating things, evaluating things that people say, evaluating things that we do, evaluating the people we listen to. Everything should be evaluated and and be uh, scrutinized uh, through the lens of Scripture while we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Discernment is good. That judgment is good. It is good for us to do that. It's possible for us to do things that are wicked in the name of discernment. I've heard this, where people are not necessarily scrutinizing something through the lens of Scripture, 
They're not walking by the power of the Spirit. Their goal isn't the edification of the body, and then they just go around critiquing everything in the name of, we're just here because our spiritual gift is discernment. Amen that you think your gift is discernment, but we have to do all things biblical out of love for edification. So this is a good thing. Any leader, any good leader should have discernment. He should have a strong sense of right and wrong that comes from God's word. That's important, okay? It's important to have this discernment. And it's important to see things and to say, that's not right. And it's then important to say, to call people to repentance, to call re- to repent in yourself, to see something that's not right and say, okay, let's course correct. Okay, that's a good thing. Okay, and it says all evil. And so a wise king says, really, anything that's bad, anything that's sinful, I, I should delight in and-, and I'm not okay with. But there is an interesting aspect next. Notice what it says. It says, he winnows all evil with his eyes. That's great. It's a judgment call. In some sense, that's what we have to do when, it- when there's discernment. However, notice that there is an inherent limitation with this phrase he winnows with his eyes it's great he's making judgment calls he's making judgment calls on what he sees the first limitation is the leader is human therefore he doesn't see everything so it's good to be a wise king it's good it's good to be a wise leader it's good to show discernment but we need to have a limitation even on ourselves going but I don't see everything. What I see, I'll call out, but I don't see everything. It's part of being a limitation of being human. But then there's a second thing, which really gets into then verse 9, which we'll talk a little bit more about in verse 9, but, but, it, but I, I think it's kind of implied here as well. He winnows out evil with what he sees with his eye. There are things that we cannot see that we need to make a judgment call about. And there's some things that will not be changed unless the heart is changed, and no human leader can change the human heart. Get all of the wisest leaders you know, put them in a room, make all the wisest decisions that they know how, and they still, together collectively, will not change the human heart. Now, they might lead people to the source that will change their heart. They might influence people greatly. They might, they might be a good force. They, they, they might say really wise things. But no human leader can change the human heart. In fact, notice verse 9. That, that's exactly the implication when you see verse 9. It says, who can say? Who, 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 who can say this? Now, I imagine we could say, well, anybody could say this, but, but truly say this and truly mean it, and this be actually something that, that is from their heart. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? Who could say that? Can any wise leader say of himself, look at the way I've purified myself? Can he say that? Nope. In fact, this word for purify, it's much more than just be clean. It's much more than, hey, I've taken a spiritual bath, as it were. 
The word means to be blameless. The, the word means to be righteous. It has the idea of being declared righteous. So who can say, I have made myself righteous? Who could say that? No one. No one can say that. So, so think of a leader. A leader is in a position where he has to use discernment. He has a desire. Let's say it's a wise leader. He has a desire that everyone lives for the Lord, a desire that we're all moving towards the Lord. But then he realizes this enormous obstacle. Number one, he can't change himself. That's a big obstacle. So then how's he going to lead other people? He can't change them. Then there's this other obstacle. Not only can I not change myself, but I am sinful. Notice the next statement in verse 9. Who can say I am clean from my sin? Who can say I'm faultless? No leader can say that. So here you have another limitation of a wise leader. He may be wise, relatively speaking, to everyone else. But compared to the Lord Jesus Christ, compared to God, he's not wise, right? Relatively, he's wise to some people, but he he doesn't match that standard. So a wise leader has that. And then there's then this overwhelming task that a wise leader has to say, well, now I'm leading people who also can't say that they've purified themselves, and they are profoundly riddled with sin. It's amazing to me uh, what the Bible says about sin and the amount of ink that is spent talking about the doctrine of sin. It's something that is so... It's part of all of our existence every day, every second, and the Bible is so colorful, incredibly colorful in, in its description, in its depths, in its vileness, in its deception, the way that it affects us. I'm also amazed that there are growing less and less, in my opinion, believers who understand the nature of sin. I've heard, I've heard numerous people who should know better, at least from my position, say, call sin something as simple as just a mistake, just made a mistake, kind of lessen it, kind of, kind of make it not as serious as it is, or, or, or redefine sin so, so that one person is obviously more sinful than another. Those are, those are dangerous. Those are dangerous things. Dangerous things we should not do. I, I think it's healthy for us to have a view of what happens, what happened at the fall, what happens when a non-believer sins, that, that a non-believer cannot overcome his sinfulness, that there's, a, there's the absolute necessity of Jesus Christ as our Savior from our sins, and then as a believer, Jesus is still absolutely necessary as a Savior from my sin, and as a believer, I deal with sin. So I just want to talk a little bit about sin and what happened at the fall. Because this is, this is important. To think about people, to think about our families, to think about ourselves, we have to have a biblical view of this, of sin. So, so at the fall, when Adam and Eve fell, which, by the way, i got to be honest, if the worst sin you could peg on me was that I ate a fruit from the wrong tree, I would take that any day. I guarantee you, If I was there, I would have made a pie out of it and put it in the fridge and ate it later. If we were there, we would have done the same thing as our first parents. We probably would have done it better. 
right? We would have done worse sins. But you realize that when that moment happens, a lot of things are put into place. A lot of things happen. When, when that first sin happened, a lot of things that affect us. So first of all, the scripture teaches us that the wages of sin is death. Death is now introduced into the universe. It wasn't introduced there before, but now it's there. Death. We find out that all men have sinned. So sin now is, is somehow transferred from our first parents to us. We learn from the scriptures that not only, not only do we just begin to sin and it just becomes easier to sin like a habit, we learn that it, it, it's something that corrupts us from the inside. It corrodes us from the inside. And it affects every faculty of who we are. So that, so that though we may not do the worst that's ever possible, there is always a bent, right? Before I knew Jesus, there was this major lean, this major bent towards sinfulness, right? The way that I make decisions, the way that I think, the way that I have emotions, all of that had a bent. The Bible talks about a lot of things, right? It talks about this death, right? That we were spiritually dead. Go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Here Paul describes this. Now, I want to remind you that in Ephesians chapter 2, this is written for believers. <laughs> we often use this text to talk to non-believers because it's a great segue to talk about someone's sinfulness, their need for a Savior, and then you get to, to verse 8 where it talks about, for by grace have we been saved through faith, which is an incredible statement to somebody. But we have to remember that what Paul's talking about, he's talking to a church who has some problems that need, that need help. And, and he's talking to them about how to walk as a church. How does a church walk in unity? Chapter 1, he deals with, we all get the same thing. There's no varsity, junior varsity in the church. There's no one that gets more and there's no one that gets less. We all are blessed by God in Christ. We will all appear, all believers will appear blameless in Christ before our Heavenly Father. That's incredible, right? Chapter 2 deals with we all kind of start in the same place. So it's not like someone started, like someone entered the church and then you have a guy who's like, he's kind of like an amateur sinner, but then that other guy, he was a professional sinner. Paul says, no, we all started from the same position. No one started on second base, right? No one, no, one, no one just gets on the field. We all start at the same level. And that's what he's dealing with here in chapter 2. So notice in verse 1. He says, and you, talking to believers, were dead in your trespasses and sins. So when I think of God saving you from your sin, maybe you did numerically more damaging things to your soul than I did numerically. Maybe you did some things that are very sinful and very vile. But understand this. When little Caleb heard the gospel as a little kid, he was dead in his sins and trespasses too. We all were dead. We all were here. Okay? Every single one of us. Therefore, there should be no sense of arrogance of I was less of a sinner. Or I was more of a sinner. No, we're all, we all were dead in our sins and trespasses, right? 
And obviously this is talking about spiritual death because he says you were dead in the sphere of your trespasses and sins. And then he says, in which you walked. So regardless if you've been in church your whole life, from the moment you were born, like me, the very first week of my existence, I was at Grace Bible Church in Gillette, Wyoming. Missed very few Sundays in my entire life. But know this, that even when little Caleb was a sinner, before he knew Jesus Christ, he was dead in his sins and trespasses. And the major principle that motivated me in my life was that sinfulness, that spiritual deadness. Still went to church, probably said a lot of right answers, but it wasn't until that moment of faith I was still dead. I'm not better, not worse. We all start in the same place. And then he says, which you all walked, once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, in the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. That's, that's us. This, this, is, uh, this is one of those embarrassing old yearbook photos that you don't want anybody to see about who you were. This is one of those. You open this up, and this is one of those things you want to cover up. I, I can't believe I used to do this. I can't believe I used to be such a slave to this evil system. I can't believe I just went along with the flow and was this sinful, this vile. I can't believe, knowing what I know now about the grace of Jesus, that I would so readily reject him and rebel against him. Right? This doesn't age well. This looks bad. So we all did this. And then notice what he says in verse 3. makes it even worse. Among whom we all, even sweet little Caleb going to Sunday school, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carried out the desires of our body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's not a good picture, right? Living according to the passions of my flesh. That's everything. The flesh is defined as everything that goes against what the Lord wants, right? That sinful principle. Man, I desired that, right? I lived by the passions and desires of that thing. That, that was, that's what I wanted, And then I carried them out. I I thought them up. I desired them. I wanted to do them. And then I did them. And then notice this next statement. And we're by nature children of wrath. A couple different ways of taking this. But I, I think the best way of understanding this is that you and I, before we were in Christ, we were an object of God's wrath. That was our nature. Our nature was this rebellious nature. That's who we were. Not only, not only does sin affect our relationship with God, right, the spiritual deadness, but it also deals with myself, right? So there's passages in the book of Romans, like Romans chapter 6, that teaches that I was a slave to sin, I was in bondage to sin. There's passages that teach that my mind is skewed, My will was skewed. Everything was skewed. I was imprisoned. Not only that, but when I dealt with other people, that sinfulness came out. I hurt other people in my sinfulness. Not only that, but I was disobedient to my parents, this ultimate sense of rebellion. Becoming a parent, then I learned about some of the stuff that I passed on to my kids. Can't apologize enough for passing on some of those things. Um... 
They will be Hilberts for a long time. We should pray for them. Uh, Sophia gets a chance to get out. Everybody else is stuck. Um, But you think about this idea of how from our first parents, I inherited the guilt of sin, the punishment of sin. Then from parent to child, from parent to child, then there's these, these passing on of what's known as this inherited sin nature where my mom gave it to me and then I gave it to my kids of this sinfulness, right? There's these proclivities. And in, sometimes in my sinful parenting of my kids, I let some of those proclivities go. It's bad, right? The whole thing's bad. You think about some of the terrible things that are happening around the world right now. All of that is a consequence of sin. We shouldn't be surprised by it because that's what happens when sinners sin. These terrible things happen. But there's a better part of the story, right, where the Holy Spirit intervened in our life, caused to see the truth of God's word, worked in our hearts, and then we expressed faith in Jesus Christ and were saved and were declared righteous. The Holy Spirit then makes us a new creature, indwells us. The old has gone and the new has come. I'm now something new, right? That old thing has passed, that old slavery is gone, and now there's this new set of desires, there's this new way of thinking. Before, when I was enslaved to sin, now I'm, now I'm trying to live for Jesus, but there's that old flesh is still trying to pull me back in. But I'm a new creature, I have this newness of life. And Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. So just quickly go with me to Romans 6. Let's start in verse 1. Notice what Paul says. He says, and what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? No. Don't. It's this weird thing where I suppose some people believe that I'm going to sin so that I can experience the fullness of God's grace. And I want to know what God's grace is like, so I'm just going to sin the most I can so that when God forgives me, I'm the one who receives the most grace. Should I do that? And Paul's like, no. What's wrong with you, man? Right? I mean, that, that's, what a, that's what that by no means means. He says, how can we who died to sin, you see that? We died to sin, still live in it. That's that's an immediate change from what we talked about, right? In Ephesians 2, we were walking according to this. Here, Paul says, how can you continue to live in it if you've died to it? And notice what he says in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, so this happens at the moment of salvation, were placed into the body of Christ. Notice we were baptized into his death. So we're united with Christ. Right? We're united to Christ in his death. And, and, and notice what else it says. And we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So we are united with Christ in that death so that when he died, it's as if the old man died. And then when he rose, it's now I'm this new person that walks in this newness of life in this resurrection power. Right? That's what Paul's saying. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done or be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see his logic? I'm united with Christ in his death. When Christ died, it was as if I died. When Christ rose from the dead, it's as if I rose from the dead. I'm united with him. I now have this newness of life. Why would I ever want to go back to that old slave master and live under that? I now have this newness of life that I can live by the power of the Spirit for him. That's what I am. Sin has no more control over me. The only thing that sin has is to tempt me. And foolishly, we fall into that temptation. But it's dead. It's got no power. We can say no to it because of the power of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. This is the newness of life that we have. It's incredible. It's incredible. We still sin. We still struggle with the flesh. We remember this when we studied in Galatians. Go with me quickly to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, notice what he says in verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. So you see, right? It's still possible for the believer to still sin, It's almost as if the flesh is crucified on the cross. We're walking by and the flesh says, hey, I need some water. And we get a ladder and we go up and we give it water. And that tells us, hey, go get us uh, something to eat. I was thinking of a Big Mac. And we go, okay, I'll be right back. We climb down the ladder. We go to McDonald's. We wait in line, get the Big Mac. Then we climb up back the wall and we feed the old flesh. It's on the cross. It's dying. It's dead. It's got no power, but we listen to it. But if we're yielding to the power of the Spirit then we will say no to sin and yes to what is right. So you say, why are we talking about this? Because a wise leader understands the, one of the major issues in leading is sin. A wise leader says, we got to get rid of sin. But a wise leader also realizes we are incapable of dealing with this by ourselves. The only answer for sin is Jesus. The only answer for sin is the Holy Spirit. It's the triune God and his word. That's the only answer. So a true leader who wants to deal with sin, but yet acknowledges the reality of sin, says, we're going towards Jesus. We're going towards the word. The leader himself is the the first example of what that looks like of somebody who is walking by the power of the Spirit. As he's doing that, he's then encouraging those behind him to walk with him. And as as he's walking, they're walking together towards Jesus, the one who can solve the issue with sin. That's the solution. 
right? So we see the objective. We got to deal with sin. Got to deal with it. A leader should call out sin. A leader should call people to repentance. A leader should repent. A leader should say, this is right, this is wrong. That's exactly, that's exactly what a leader should do. But a leader also realizes, I can't solve it. You can't solve it. Jesus solves it. So let's go to Jesus to solve this issue. A wise leader promotes these types of things. A wise leader understands these things. A wise leader points people to these things. So I'm I'm just going to pick on the fathers for a moment. Fathers, men, as spiritual leaders of our household, we are leaders. The type of leadership that God's called us to is this. And the things that we should talk about to our children and our grandchildren and our spouse are these types of things. Call out that which is bad. Repent for those things that you've done. But always promote Jesus. Always point them back to the word. Always yield to the power of the spirit. This is the type of leadership that we should have. Always looking to Jesus. Always eyes on Jesus. Always dealing with sin with Jesus. Never by ourselves. I've seen it too many times of leaders that try to deal with sin in a human way. And it only leads to more sin. It doesn't matter how tight-fisted you are, how many rules you set up, how many curfews you set up, how many little rules and regulations, all of that just leads to more and more sin. The only answer, let's go to Jesus. Now, this morning we have another incredible opportunity to think of this grace of Jesus. And when we think about its grace, it's truly grace. Think about this. We, we are incapable of saving ourselves. We are not lovely. We are not redeemable. But what did God do in his great love? Sent Jesus to die for us. Declare us righteous. Crazy. That's, that's craziness. But he did that. He did that out of his love for us. We see this grace of, it's not just that I get all of these rewards because Christ died on the cross for my sins. It's that I'm accepted by God. That God looks at me with favor and declares me as righteous. Declares me as his child. He helps us in our fight with sin. And so this morning we have an incredible opportunity to think once again of the gospel. And as we think about the gospel and we think about what Jesus, how he dealt with our sin on the cross by his death, burial, and resurrection, we're going to proclaim this together through the elements of the Lord's table. So just as as we're listening to the bugs commit suicide in the back there, um, what's going to happen is we're going to hand out the elements. Please do not partake.